The revolt of the public will not necessarily usher in an authoritarian age. It does not necessarily foster populism. It is not necessarily destructive of liberal democracy. The revolt of the public, as I envision the thing, is a technology-driven churning of new people and classes, a proliferation and confusion of message and noise, utopian hopes and nihilistic rage, globalization and disintegration, taking place in the unbearable personal proximity of the web and at a fatal distance from political power. Every structure of order is threatened. Matt? Neil? Welcome to another episode of Made You Think. Glad to be here. How's it going? This one was a lot of fun. It was a good book. Yeah. This is probably the best book we've we've done in a while. I feel like we've had a couple duds recently or books that weren't yeah. as fun to read. Right? We, we were saying seeing like a state is a great set of ideas in an incredibly boring book. These are good ideas in a good book. This is fun yeah. to read. Yeah, this is one where even if you listen to the episode, I would still say read the book. Like it's just a fun book. Yeah. yeah. Well written. Like he, I kind of like that he even just like he doesn't seem to take himself that seriously either as the author, like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For very serious ideas, it's a very light book. <laughs> it also needs to be a book, was my impression. Like, the summary, my my summary on it is very brief. My summary is maybe five or six paragraphs. So there's an argument that this could be a blog post. But the emotional resonance is so much more profound after 400 pages of reading it. Like, I don't think, I think the ideas you could superficially understand in a shorter version of it. But at 400 pages, I walked away like emotionally like holy shit yeah this is a good example of a book properly using illustrative stories to make its point in a way that would be lost without the stories there are so many books that are clearly a few blog posts which were extended to book length by adding a bunch of unnecessary stories that confirm the writer's bias but don't really argue the point that strongly but this is one where you get the stories and you see how this has been evolving over the last 20 years as our access to information and communication improves and it really paints a very compelling cohesive picture of the thesis the issues all of that it, it's really good and even though it's all anecdotes but it felt complete Whereas, like, seeing, like, a state, the anecdotes to me never felt complete, didn't feel fully formed. Mm-hmm. It felt like I was very easily generating counterexamples. Whereas mm-hmm. here, I'm pretty hard-pressed to think of examples that I would think would, like, compellingly counter his argument. He, like, found a thread that was, like, pretty consistent, even in things that were uh, seemingly unrelated, actually. You know, I was just, I was, all I was going to say is, like, that central thread that is so clear in the book, and I guess you're right, superficially easy to understand, is that as... There has been an exponential increase in the amount of information. There has been a corresponding decrease in the power of centralized authorities, be that government, big business, media, in every kind of field. And Adil, you're you're definitely right. Like you, it's very hard to come up with counterexamples to that. Like in what domain since the internet has really kind of become mainstream, has centralized authority not gotten more powerful necessarily because you can probably come up with counter arguments to that, but has gotten more authoritative where their word is believed in a completely, you know, un like you could say nobody would ever question it. Right. I mean, you can't even look at religion, you know, religion doesn't even have that government doesn't have that business doesn't have that media doesn't have that 
it's just every field you can possibly think of. It's just been eroded. Yeah. And that's and it, basically the central premise of the book. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe we should take a, maybe we should take a step yeah. back and explain what some of the central premises are before we yeah. D- yeah. dive into them too much. Adil, it sounds like you actually wrote a few paragraph summary of the book after reading yeah. it. Yeah. Do you want yeah, to yeah. walk through the core ideas then? Sure thing. So the piece that Neil just mentioned, the relationship between sources of information and their authority uh, has a very strong, like intuitive and logical connection. So when you have fewer sources of information, each source has greater authority because they have what's closer to a monopoly on information. And the closer you are to the monopoly, the more authority you have. So if there was only one source, they have a total monopoly, then they are the authority. Can I, can I interject with a quotation? From the book yeah, yeah, do it. For that, yeah, yeah. He he has this great line where he says, "When I was a boy, and factual disputes arose in my family, they were settled by consulting the Encyclopedia Britannica. Back then, the world of information was shaped like a pyramid. Those at the top decided signal from noise, knowledge from fraud, certainty from uncertainty. The public and mass media embraced this arrangement. All things being equal, authority was trusted and relied on. Today, we drown in data, yet thirst for meaning. <laughs> Boom." Oh, <laughs> sorry go ahead that, i just no I started explaining. Great. i was like this line is so perfect it's <laughs> so good actually in quite a few places in the book i was like jotting in the margins like lack of meaning like probably lack of religiosity or authority like one of the two right uh because they have largely been one or the other i think for most of millennia like before you really had news intermediaries you had the religious intermediary as a source of authority and now it's like both have been degraded so you have information then that has very few intermediaries. Each intermediary uh, has a lot of authority. Information also moves slowly and the consumers are consumers only. So that's the old. And the new is information moves fast. There are many intermediaries who are now splitting the authority amongst them. So they have fewer, less and less authority each and they are also more opportunity for contradiction between them. And the public both consumes and creates information. So you have like an exponential increase in the number of creators of information. I think one thing actually that was missing or maybe not explicit was you both have more information, but the exponential increase in creators, like not a linear increase. There was a lot of focus on exponential increase of information, but once you have easy creation and dissemination of information, it degrades the authority of the old intermediaries and this fractures the narrative. So a fractured narrative makes it such that large groups can organize only when they are negating something because all affirmative narratives are now too fractured to bring people together. And the example and they gave in the book. And yeah. falsifiable because you can, you can always find like counterexamples. There's always, there's always uh, anecdotes to erode authority. It's just like, hey, you were wrong one time. Why should we believe you? Yep. I'm actually going to stop here at negation. We can get to the remainder of the arc. Uh, so we don't spoil the whole ending, but I think there's a lot to discuss here actually around negation. Like this part was one of the things that, uh, there were a few mind fucks for me throughout this. And this one was a big one. Negation is easy because we can all agree that something is broken. And the example they gave of, uh, in Germany for Merkel's last, uh, government, it took them like four months in when he was writing that piece of the book, they still hadn't formed a coalition. They had this Mm -hmm. phrase like the fractured cats and dogs. They were literally only elected in because of negation and there was nothing in common between them. So they just simply could not form a majority government. It made me wonder like the 
a presidential system. We've talked on previous episodes that we've been very happy about gridlock. Uh, but the presidential system, like a two-party system rather, seems much better equipped to move rapidly in the age of the revolt of the public than the parliamentary system. Because at least one in the presidential system, it's like you can sort of rely that you'll get like all houses for two years at a time if you're a compelling candidate. Whereas parliamentary system, everyone gets their, their proportional share of the vote. Yeah, not only that, we have the executive order system as well. Like there's ways you can kind of get around some congressional group. I mean, whether that's a good or bad thing, there's things that yeah. a president can do that probably a prime minister can't just simply because of how the system is set up. It does. I mean, to your point, though, ideal, it does feel like we have had a number of years now of election by negation versus election by inspiration, motivation, whatever. We, we talked about this on previous episodes, but I, I think this is the big difference between our generation and maybe our parents' generation, right? And it's funny because this is like classic prophet versus hero, fourth turning dichotomy, <laughs> right? Where the, the prophets grew up in an era of abundance <laughs> and excellence, right? The the interstate highway system and moon landing and all of that. And we grew up with uh, $2 trillion spent in the Middle East and student college or college debt and like all these just like failures. And if we look at like our, our presidential elections, right? Like, uh, Obama's probably the hardest one to argue because I think there was some degree of inspiration there. Right. But there was also a little bit of a like reaction to Bush, but then, you know, Trump was a hundred percent a, a reaction type election. Right. And what's fascinating is that this book was written before, 2016 and so he yeah yeah, we should have mentioned that yeah yeah yeah. so this this is like a this is like a new commentary this is written in 14 i want to say i think it was 2014 yeah 2014 originally and he basically said that uh i mean there's just a couple of passages that i'll cite here here's a great one right like the the political and expert classes claimed competence over settled truth that's who they were that's what they did they produced certainty and erased doubt But if certainty is a function of authority, then a symptom of authority's decline will be a radical and generalized uncertainty regarding important questions. Uh, A little later down, actually further on in that same quotation I mentioned for a deals topic, uh, he says, the more you know, the less you trust as the gap between reality and the authority's claims of competence becomes impossible to ignore. Right. As we gained access to more information, it became easier and easier to say, well, you're like wrong about this thing and I can't trust you here. So I can't trust you at all. And so it's easy to end up in this very nihilistic state of, well, we can't trust anybody in authority. And so we need somebody from like outside the authority. And then you end up with this kind of like rise of populism that I think we saw, especially going to Trump's election. And then you know, coming out of Trump, it's like nobody was excited about Biden. <laughs> like, it, was, it was like negation. a negation of Trump. I mean, yeah, yeah, it was, it was a negation of Trump, Trump, right? Yeah. yeah. It was, uh, again, purely reactionary. And so yeah. I, I think, kind of like what the author is saying, is it Guri or Giri? Do you know? I like Guri, but I guess we should look sure. that up. But it, one of the things he's getting at in the quotation that Adil read at the beginning is, this can really go any direction. It doesn't have to descend. It, we don't have to end up in, you know, total, you know, like totalitarianism in like some sort of crazy, awful state. But the longer we sit 
in this nihilistic response to the situation, the longer we go without anything being solved. And so there is a need for a new system of trust, authority, knowledge, confidence to emerge that can exist within this hyper access to information that we now live in. In his solutions section, or choices, rather, he was careful not to call it solutions, so I will respect that uh, diligence. In the choices section, he had two parts, which was around what individuals can do and what government can do. And my my reaction to that was like, what individuals can do is moot, because individuals won't. Everyone's going to do what they naturally will, which is like open Instagram, Twitter, get of information from a million sources. <clears throat> so basically, the whole impetus for action, at least for realistic like solutions to the nihilism has to be from the government side and his predictions in 2014 about how the elites would react to the revolt of the public were really apt like you just mentioned around uh the control of the truth like the new york times slogan was literally the word truth in 2016 2017 yeah like talk about like trying to control the truth yeah well, what's what's the new what's the new ministry of truth thing called uh, uh no they got rid of it though they got rid of it oh, it was they like get rid the of disinformation it? Okay. board or something oh, like no. that disinformation governance disinformation board governance board yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that is a great example though i mean he was spot on with that that basically like yeah. as these pr- sources proliferate and i mean the funny thing, too, is like, even if they tried to control at this point, right, there's just so many sources and so many right. places and so many platforms. Like, it's just it's like the it's like a Pandora's box. Like once it starts, it's it's out like you're you can't yeah. get the you can't put it back. Or you can, but it's like monumental effort. Like, I believe in China, yes. the censor whatever group is like over a million people. Holy shit. It's massive. <laughs> I mean, we don't know any of these things for sure, but the speculated number is colossal. Wow. Yeah. Well, I I like how Yuri frames our current uh, paradigms around authority as being emergent from the industrial age, where about midway through the book, he says, current structures of authority are a legacy of the industrial age. The public, when it needs answers, turns to institutions rather than to charismatic individuals. These institutions have been subjected to a tailorist process of rationalization. They are, without exception, top-down, specialized, professionalized, prone to pseudoscientific rituals and jargon. But this is really what we're starting to see change. And I think where the like traditional elites feel a lot of their power threatened is you do have highly charismatic individuals reclaiming a lot of authority without going through these, you know, top-down systems of approval, right? And you see it everywhere, like for better or worse, right? You've got Alex Jones, obviously, who's a great example of this, but you also have really good versions. I mean, like Dan Carlin would be like another great example where if you wanted to have an impact as a historian, you needed to get a degree in history, get a PhD in history, like do tons of grad work, write papers, you know, maybe start publishing books and then you could have an influence. The dude just started talking on a podcast and he's probably, and he's definitely the most impact. He's, he's the most influential historian alive today, right? Like no question about it. Right. There's actually a great quotation too on this. This is a perfect quotation on this. So that passive mass audience on which so many political and economic institutions depended had itself unbundled, disaggregated, fragmented into what I call vital communities, 
groups of wildly disparate size gathered organically around a shared interest or theme. That's exactly what's happening. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you see it everywhere. And some of those groups, I mean, some of those groups can be large. Some of them, you know, you can see like, you can also see like overlaps in certain groups, but it's not like perfect overlaps and they'll turn on each other. Like, you know, one that you weirdly see is like crypto and like sort of some nutrition or like carnivore communities. Yeah. yeah. There's like a lot of overlap between that for whatever reason. I'm not actually sure why it like they don't naturally lend themselves together, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, but I, I guess what I'm saying is like, these are disparate groups, but like people can be part of one group. They can be part of 50 different groups and like, it's all organic. You're not being force fed into them. As far as you know, though, I think like, so the second sort of, corollary point to a lot of what he's saying is well and this may be me reading between the lines but it's that okay you can't force feed people through a you know your approved spigot of information so now a tactic that's a lot more interesting or useful is how do you influence people like in a more subtle way since you can't force it like so what can you do to kind of uh make people think that they're thinking independently but not not really the visual of the pyramid where the Elites sit atop the pyramid and the public sits across the bottom and the elites are interested in increasing the distance between the top and the bottom of the pyramid. But Mm -hmm. in order to succeed in the age of the revolt of the public, you have to actually reduce that space. And what Obama and Trump both did quite well, Trump significantly better than Obama, was reduce that space. Obama did a good job because he participated in negation and Trump did a good job because everything i mean twitter the rants and like just the way he acted extremely unpresidential uh, like even the word unpresidential is actually oh absolutely yeah absolutely the the framing of unpresidential like maybe the, I, I would say this book calls that framing into question like maybe maybe presidential behavior is now actually flattening the pyramid but being like you know less uh I mean, there's a lot of like Trumpist vitriol that I think is still bad. That's independent of flattening the pyramid. Like you can flatten the yep. pyramid, reduce the distance to the public and not be the way he was. But yeah, maybe the, the framing of unpresidential needs to change. Like this is yeah, just what it, it takes to be effective. He's got this great line towards the end where he says, the quality that sets the true elites apart that bestows authority on their actions and expressions isn't power or wealth or education or even persuasiveness. It's integrity in life and work. A healthy society is one in which such exemplary types draw the public toward them purely by their force of example. Without compulsion, ordinary persons aspire to resemble the extraordinary, not superficially, but fundamentally, because they wish to partake of superior models of being or doing. There, there's really this element of like people don't want to be talked down to. They want somebody who's on their level really like leading them not managing them right this is kind of like the the classic example of a good leader versus a good manager right like a manager is back off the field telling you what to do and a leader is you know on the front lines like charging in and i think part of why biden doesn't feel like as you know he doesn't feel like a a good president in part because he seems so like I'm just going to totally retreat to the ivory tower and like talk down to everyone. And I'm not really like in it with you. Right. And to Adil's point, like you know, Trump didn't necessarily do that in a healthy way, but he at least was, you know, it, he, he created that like one of the people 
sense to him. And I feel like that's kind of what everyone expects now from political leadership in general. There, there's this, I, I think one idea he talked on a little bit that I think is getting more mainstream is this idea of like, like a, a Superman, right? Where in the industrial age, it was popular to believe that like politicians and CEOs and whatever were these like super people who were above normal humans and had like these idyllic qualities. And as we gained access to more information, we became afraid of certain things happening that would reveal that each of us were human, right? That we were not super people, right? Like the, this is kind of a silly example, but like the fear around like old tweets or even like if you're sending your partner nudes on Snapchat or something, right? It's like, how could like somebody, nobody could figure out, nobody can know that I'm like actually human. And (laughs) those kinds of things coming out used to like destroy reputations. And now I think, they're kind of like expected, right? It's like, oh, cool. He's one of us or she's one of us, right? Like they're a normal person. They're not trying to like be up on this platform. And that that shift, is, I think, is actually healthy at the end of it. One of the framings he broke for me was the, I think this is very like a very old school framing, which is you either have populism, which is very, very dangerous, or you have like lead by the distant elite. And he basically said like, that's actually not a spectrum where you have to pick one side. It's more of a matrix where you have like dangerous, not dangerous, and then you have populist or distant. And it's like you could have someone who's like not dangerous, but very populist, like Dan Carlin type or, you know, I mean, any of the low distance to the public folks who we might look up to, like Rogan's uh, probably Joe Rogan. The, yeah. the strongest one there. Yeah. Yeah. I think those folks will find success, but it, it broke that framing for me. I was like, oh, okay, populism is not paired with vitriol necessarily. Right. Yeah, it's just reducing that distance. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing that this whole section of the book also called out for me was, well, in this whole book, actually, he calls this out, that he's not making an opinion on, like, are elites a good or bad thing? He's talking about, like, there's trade-offs to having a society that is, you know, leans more to the elite side versus the public side and leans more to the public versus the elite side. Like, there's advantages and disadvantages. And... You know, you could definitely say, I'd, I would say for sure that like at, there was a certain point in time where elite, it was clearly like elite dominated. And then the, you could make the argument like, you know, it's more public dominated now. But then like, what are we not able to do because of that? Right. Like, I think we've talked on previous episodes, like, you know, the moon landing and like a lot of these sort of massive projects that we were able to do as a country, you know, it's just like, can we even do that? anymore because and and is that because of actually how public dominated we are because there's always going to be somebody you know if they tried to do like a big mars initiative or something tomorrow there would be so many people who are like oh we could spend that money doing like this this and this and like why are we giving it to like nasa to send people to mars like what's the point there's starving people here or sick people here or whatever and that is absolutely true but there's it's so easy to negate right whereas before it would just be like you know there would be like one news channel and like four newspapers and they would all like be in support of the 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 moon landing or the the big space mission and stuff and that shapes public opinion and and anyway you didn't have an outlet even if you disagreed it was like what do you you know what are you gonna do write a letter to your congressperson or something like (laughs) you know like what what option did you have you could try to vote kennedy out four years later maybe or something right like those are your options now like you could i mean you know you could literally have like a you know, I don't know, like a 
Antifa or something go to NASA well, and just like fuck shit up or something. I mean, you, you, you look at how that stuff, <laughs> you look at how that stuff is getting done. And I mean, it, it seems so ridiculous every time we say it, but like most of it's getting done by Musk, right? It's like, how, yeah. how are there not, I, this, this pisses me off every time I think about it, right? It's like, how are there not more people like him doing stuff this aggressively on this scale? But one of the one of the aspects I think really is that the, the reason he can direct people towards working seven day weeks, you know, with good pay and everything, but still like working very hard, you know, in person, all of that on these big problems is one that they're actually working on big problems and making progress. But two, there's an element of while he's clearly like not one of us, he is like actively working on the stuff with you, right? Like he, he seems to be able to go into the factories and hold his own with the engineers and be able to like contribute on, you know, working on things. And like he, you know, watches Rick and Morty and seems to like get high and fuck around on Twitter and send memes about Bill Gates. And like, you know, there, there's this like, oh, like you're one of us. Like we're working on this together, right? Like you're not talking down to me. You're not some like Rockefeller tycoon forcing people to do stuff like... You're just a normal person who happens to be pretty smart and wants to build shit and like, I want to build it with you. And we really just don't have that at the government level right now, right? Like, I can't think of a politician who both exudes the I am one of you and the we are going to go do all this cool stuff together energy. There's definitely a lot of the like, I am one of, or there's more of the I am one of you types, but there isn't a strong like bias for action, or at least we don't yeah, see as much. Net, of that there's yet. a there's a lot of the I am one of you and everything sucks type energy on yes. both sides. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Like, yeah. It's the yeah, I am I mean, one of you and we're fucked, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's not like the like with Musk, right? The the vibe you get is like let's go solve this or let's go do this. Yeah, and, yeah. Like, we're gonna go do something yeah. about it. Right. It's not like oh the world is falling apart and there's nothing we can do about it. And by the way, your kids are fucked and the earth won't exist in fifty well, and the, years. The blaming, right? Right. Like I, you know, like AOC might be a good example of this, where there there is a clear sense that she is one of us. She's a young person who was, I think, working in the service industry and then got into politics and is very charismatic, very outspoken, clearly trying to change things. But there there is this sense of like these bad people have like done all of this bad stuff and we need to like take it away from them or like, you know, everything is shitty and terrible. And, you know, this kind of like combativeness versus like, we're going to build all of this stuff. We're going to like create all of these things. And maybe that's unfair. And somebody could send me examples of where I'm wrong, but that's at least the energy that I get from a lot of the like younger, we are one of you politicians. Yeah, and we can get to this part later, but the last chapter of the book, the the updated version of the book where he talks about about Trump actually did like a revised edition where he gives a lot of examples of how like Trump is kind of the ultimate like nihilistic politician. And I disagreed with that in some ways, but there were some quotes that he pulled out. Like there's one where he just talks about like the state of the inner cities in, in the US and it's like he just kind of talked about the problems. But he didn't paint like this picture of, you know, this golden age that we're going to. Right. And yeah. I think that's like a big difference from, let's say, the 60s or 50s. The I want to take us back like two minutes. I, I don't fully agree with the characterization of like Musk is the only one working on things. I think in government, you have to sell a story. 
to reduce your distance to the public helps you sell the story more. And it's like a necessary, increasingly necessary part of getting the job. But as a capitalist, you don't necessarily have to sell your story. So Musk is kind of unique as like the celebrity capitalist, whereas you probably have, I would imagine, significantly more people who are kind of working very quietly. I mean, we could throw out examples of folks we know who are like low profile doing interesting things. I'm sure, Nat, you have many examples from crypto. A couple that came to my mind immediately were like the longevity folks who are not quite celebrity status yet, except around like small communities. But because it's not a prerequisite for the job, I don't know if I would agree that these are the the, the celebrities are the only ones working on difficult things. It's just they're a little bit likelier to be hidden in the private sector, whereas in the public sector, it's like you necessarily have to be showy. I think Musk is like the ultimate storyteller, though, right? Like for years, yeah. Tesla was like this money losing, like just this money pit, basically, that was nowhere close to making money. And then it, it you know, kind of turned a corner. But that took, yeah. I want to say 15 years, right? At least. But that was much more focused, right? The culture. Yeah, but he kind of turned. He was only able to keep that going because of his sort of fundraising and storytelling ability. And fundraising is just storytelling. I mean, you know, that's basically what it is. Yeah, I suppose I was using storytelling on more of a grand scale. Like, yes, he doesn't have to win an election. He doesn't have to win an election yet. So it's a little different from that perspective. Even if the highlighting Musk is unfair, I do think it is fair to say that the private sector makes progress on these things and is able to use capital efficiently. Whereas if, if NASA came out and said, we're going to go to Mars 2030, it's happening. Like I would just kind of laugh, right? Like <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't have any confidence in their ability to do it with, you know, e- even with 10 X the budget, I wouldn't expect them to get there as quickly as SpaceX or even blue origin or someone, right? It, it, in almost every, I can't think of a government agency where if they announced some major project, I would go like, oh, whoa, this is exciting. Like, they're going to do it, right? My reaction would be yeah. like, that's cute, right? Like, are you fundraising, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's, so a really, it's a really sad, sad state to be in. It's sad, but he, he actually has a great quote from the book about this. So he says, the difference is that he's talking about the difference between failing companies and failing governments. It says, the difference is that failing companies go out of business and are replaced by new companies, while government accumulates failure, making it systemically much more fragile. Yeah, dude. It's like the government came up go out of business. Yeah, so many Taleb times in ways I didn't expect. <laughs> this guy loves. Also, Taleb. yeah. <laughs> real quick, Nat, I think it's hilarious you said the thing about NASA and Mars because NASA did announce in 2018 they're going to send people back to the moon, and the lack of awareness of the announcement I think is extremely <laughs> telling. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just, I mean, I remember what was that? There was there was some meme going around. I mean, it wasn't really a meme; it was like a chart about spacex spending versus nasa spending Mm. and the amount that's been done with it and i think it actually was that spacex spends less than 10 percent as much as nasa on some of these projects like including the moon project maybe oh yeah and you know they've been able to do so much more with it like did you guys listen to the palmer lucky interview on Mm -hmm. all in it's pretty good and the i mean half of it is like him being angry at Jason Calcanis it sounds like for legitimate reasons, but the other half is him talking about Andriel, which is his like weapons company that works with DOD. And the thing he highlighted in the interview, which I, I knew on some level this was how it worked, but I didn't realize just how ridiculous it was until he was explaining it, is most government contracts work on this like cost plus basis where 
they put out like a request for proposal, build us a new drone, we'll pay you the cost of doing it plus like some extra percentage. And then GM or Lockheed or whoever can go and build this thing and they can basically charge like whatever they want because they don't have to really make a business out of it because they're just going to get paid an extra percentage on top of whatever cost. Whereas what Andreal is doing is they're like building the drones and stuff first and then going and selling them to the government. And so they actually have an incredibly strong incentive to make it as cost effective, uh, as cheap and everything as possible while still being a highly efficient machine, because then they get like a massive margin on top of their costs. And they're actually able to build things a lot faster, cheaper, and more effectively than some of these old like giants because their incentive structure is completely flipped. It's very similar to like, what SpaceX has had to do where they had to build a profitable business launching rockets. And now they can sell that service to the government for, I think it's literally 10 or 20% of the cost of their competitors. Because there's a reason. And to. Exactly. There's, yeah. So yeah. It, it really comes back to this like financial incentive system is really completely broken, which is why I like the idea that we talked about an episode or two ago about this like yeah. economic draft, right? Like let's get some, get some business people in the government and clean up the books a bit. It's the only way this stuff gets solved. Yeah, and Nat, one thing you brought up on a previous episode, I guess the one counter example I can think of to this big projects, I guess lack of big projects that we've had in our lifetime, at least from a, a national level, is w- weirdly the COVID vaccine. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of how they did that whole rollout. However, as I was reading this book, I was like, am I just doing negation here? Like, where because it's easy, like it's easy to criticize, like, oh, they fucked this up, or this was wrong, or this was bad. But it's like that was, to their credit, a big ambitious project that did get done and did get out into the public and like, you know, is did somehow work. Like that is the one yeah. example I can think of in our lifetime. I mean, you, you can also argue happened. the other side of it a little bit, which is that the government didn't do it. They wrote a blank check for yes. Moderna and Pfizer and them to go do it. There was no like, like yeah. you, when you think about the Manhattan Project, Which is probably better. Right? Think about how much that would have cost, though. Like if the government and it would have been fucked up way worse. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So it, it was it was good that they did it that way because it, it, like you think of the Manhattan Project where they attracted all the best scientists in the country to like come work on this thing at the government. Like I can't imagine the CDC or NIH like attracting the best researchers in the country to like leave their other jobs and come work on this in the government and yeah. then like go back afterwards. One thing that crossed my mind during the book, and I'm going to posit this as a question, but I think I kind of know the answer. I think I wonder if we overly deify like 1945 through 1971. Like if you consider, for example, the space program, and let's say that you had today's technologies and like information sphere at that point in time. The first thing that would have hit Twitter would be that like half the program was literally Nazis that we had poached. Like we would have never actually made it to the <laughs> That's a great point. Right? So I, I wonder if there's point. like this, the bar has just moved and like things have probably changed. I mean, we did end up pulling these things off. We pulled them off without the revolt of the public, which made it easier to pull off and arguably. I, I still think... And really the question would be like, <laughs> have we overly deified? And I think maybe yeah. not. Like we did accomplish pretty great things, but it would have been much harder in today's environment. Well, it's kind of like the IRB, right? The Internal Review Board for like scientific research. Like the expect the the threshold for what's acceptable got so much higher that we actually can't do a lot of the old research that certain modern understandings of things are based on. And there is this question of like, okay, 
everything that the government and our politicians are doing is instantly or not everything, but a lot of it is pretty instantly knowable by anybody at the world at any, at like any moment. And a consequence of that might be this fear of action. Right. And yeah. I, I was thinking about this a little bit today because with the, with the Roe v. Wade thing and everybody's obviously like you know, very incensed about it on social media over the weekend and my my continual like frustration with this is you see a lot of like anger and outrage and complaining, but you don't see a lot of people saying, so I'm going to run for my like city council or like I'm going to start a political action committee or like you don't hear a lot of like I'm going to do X about Y. It's just sort of like complaining. And I I wonder if on some level we because of cancel culture, we've created a fear of doing anything because the minute you stick your neck out somebody along somebody is going to come along and try to cut your head off and we almost have to get through this phase of pretending people are faultless and that you won't be able to find something to attack somebody with and people need to get used to or be okay with getting canceled a little bit so that they can then like become political again and try to run for office because i i was even thinking about it a little bit where i was like you know, should I like, should I try to run for city council in Austin or like, should I run for mayor or like do something like that? And it, the, the first thing that I, well, the first thing that I thought of was like, ah, fuck, like I've said some really stupid shit in the past. Right. And like, and like I was mean to some people in college and like all of that, like all that would get dragged up. And then like people are being mean to me and being mean to my family. And like, I I just, I don't want to deal with that. Right. And so like, I'm just going to do nothing and I'm going to yell at my screen. Uh, (laughs) that there's probably some degree of that. Right. Like, I, I can't imagine that that's not holding people back from going after the, I mean, like and you, and you, this, this is kind of like a, a tough thing to think about and talk about, but you look at a lot of like great people in like great leaders or whatever in history. And a lot of them also had like some pretty fucked up shit to go with it. Right. Oh yeah. I mean like, it sounds like Obama's childhood was pretty rough. Right. And if he had like, you know, tweeted some stupid shit or taken some bad photos, right. Like would that have kept him, out of office, right? Like you look at like MLK was like cheating on his wife or whatever. JFK, right? Like he was obviously like a pretty, you know, not great social <laughs> like in his personal life guy. Like a lot of people who like did great things would not have made it today, right? Or would not have made it in the last few years. And so how do we like get past that? I don't know. It has to be it's probably people who embrace that like side of the like Again, going back to Trump, right? It's like I know. Yeah. What could you say to cancel Trump? Like, there's not much besides <laughs> this like top down cancellation. Like, they couldn't do a bottom up cancellation. Like, they so, they had to take him off social media. Basically, I mean, that's like the yeah. one way yeah. you could cancel him. It had to be top down. But they could never get it where like, oh, everybody in the public hates this guy because everything was already out there. It was just like this is who he. Like, there were no surprises about like yeah. his behavior. At any point in the situation, it was never like, oh, I'm this great upstanding guy. I've never done anything wrong and I'm lecturing down to you. Right. I think like that's where people get really pissed off is if you are like, oh, I'm this perfect person. I've never done anything wrong. You bad people out there are the ones who do all the bad stuff. And then it comes out that, oh, I'm doing all the same shit. Like there's that one guy who was an epidemiologist. I want to say Niall Ferguson is his name, but I could be getting that wrong. And if it's not him, I don't mean to slander Niall Ferguson. But he was like head of like the National Health Service, like epidemiologist or something in the UK, pushed for the lockdowns and made it happen. And then it turned out he was like going 
to his mistress's house when you're not even supposed to like leave your house at that point to cheat on his wife like and just like completely breaking all the rules of his own thing not just for like oh i'm breaking the rules to like go get food it's like no i'm breaking the rules that i made for the rest of the public to go cheat on my wife it's like that's the type of shit people hate and like that's where revolt of the public like where people want to burn stuff down right because it's like you made my life so much harder and now you're completely violating that rule <laughs> two two things thing did one. i get the guy right did I get the guy? His name right? is Neil Ferguson. I understand even you want worse. to distance yourself even from worse. it, but even worse. <laughs> <laughs> Those Neil guys, no. they're dangerous. <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, this guy just Watch looks creepy. I just googled him. What the hell? <laughs> uh, no, Google but, him. Go to Google Neil, images to and search him. <laughs> <laughs> just uh, a weird looking dude. <laughs> Sorry, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> Neil, to your but, point though. I do think, I think a big chunk of it is what you said. And I think it's probably above my pay grade to try and attribute causality. But, and sorry, the, the piece that you said, which is like Trump's bar was uh, lower because he didn't claim grandeur and perfection. I also think the bar is lower because he was negating. I think if you mm-hmm. have a positive affirming view of something, you're like, hey, here's the chart we're going to path. Then the, the expectations are raised. I don't have anything to back this up besides some intuitive feeling though. Yeah. Well, one thing that I saw, and like I don't, I, I find Ben Shapiro extremely annoying, and I generally dislike him. But he did something which I kind of respect, where he somebody came after him for something, and this was before he got as popular as he is now. But somebody was coming after him for something, and he said, "Okay, you know what? Fuck this." He published a a page on his site that was like slash canceled me or something, and he just listed out every like embarrassing thing he had done in his life, every stupid thing he'd said in an article or an interview, like anything he could think of that somebody could come after him with. He was like, here it is, right? Like, come fuck me up. I'm not going to like sit around and be afraid of this stuff coming out. Like here are all of my imperfections. And there's something really powerful about that because it immediately deflates anybody's attempt to bring it up because you can just be like, oh yeah, I published this on my site four years ago, right? Like you're just finding out about this now. And it, it kind of shows that, yeah, you're, you're a human, you make mistakes. And there's, there's something really leveling about that. Where like, to your point, a deal, if you want to be a like positive focused leader, this stuff, kind of stuff coming out can really hurt you. But if you preempt it and you say like, no, like here are all of my faults, but you know, here's what I've learned from them. And like, and here's, you yeah. know, the, the direction I'm going anyway, it, it becomes an asset. It's kind of like what Jeff Bezos did with mm-hmm. National Enquirer, right? Yeah. Where they're trying to blackmail him with the dick pics and he wrote the <laughs> yeah. medium article and was like, if they want to release them, go for it. I don't care. But like, <laughs> fuck you guys. <laughs> and they were kind of like powerless after that, right? It's, yeah. it's, yeah. I, I think that's what we're just going to have to start defaulting towards is either not caring about this stuff coming out within reason, right? Like we're, we're going to have to figure out like right now we've gone way too far of like, Oh, you, you said anything embarrassing 10 years ago, then like you're a Nazi and we mm-hmm. have to murder you. Right. And that's like a little too strong, but, and you know, we have to walk it backwards. Like, okay, you know, if you cheated on your wife 10 years ago, like it's kind of fucked, right? Like we're going to judge you for that, but you got drunk and did some stupid shit in college. Right. It's like, it's probably a lot of people, right? We're, as long as you're not that person anymore, we're going to let that slide and expect that you have, like growing and matured since then. And we haven't really been able to figure out where that balance is because we're so immediate to just, you know, destroy anybody as soon as we find anything to condemn them. Yeah. 
Nat, going back to what you were saying earlier about like people not taking action after you know something that they're at least talking about very passionately and not saying like the next step of like okay then I'm gonna run for this or or do this about it. I wonder how much of that too is like they they almost lose the they they don't have like the need to act. And you were talking about this in your in your tweet thread or Twitter thread earlier today, where it's like by posting about it, you take away your impetus to to act on it like you feel like i've done something that's a good point it's like, an I'm excuse done. or yeah 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 it's not even an excuse it's like that emotion is yeah, gone excuse, because it, you've done you've done your job it. at that point yeah yeah, uh, yeah. i was thinking about that a bit too with like because there there is i think this important difference between protest and posting online and there, it's like yeah when you just post something online like no politician is afraid of a few angry tweets like they get rid of that fear pretty quickly because they know they're going to be getting nonstop angry tweets. But if a mob shows up outside your house, you're going to pay attention to that. And yeah. you know, I'm not I'm not saying violence is the answer, but the threat of violence is important for keeping politicians in line because they need to understand on some level that if they fail to represent their population, like they will be removed. There there is some threat of power against them. And that's really what I think a protest is doing because like a protest doesn't really like convince people to change their mind that much. The size of it might for people who are on the fence where they'll be like, oh, wow, people like really care about this thing. I'm going to change my mind. But I think a lot of the power of it is in reminding politicians that like they don't have a total monopoly. That on you violence, work for us. Right. Yeah, that you work yeah, for you us. Work for us. Yeah. Exactly. We can still <laughs> organize against you. So like, you better not fuck this up. And, you know, we, we've kind of lost a little bit of that when you just post online. But then, yeah, the second step of like, OK, well, are you going to run for office? Right. Are you going to like start a political action committee? Are you going to buy like 10,000 units of plan B and put, you know, pictures on them that say like, fuck Greg Abbott and give them out for free to anybody in the state who needs them, right? Like, what are you going to do? Right. And we've just kind of like lost a little bit of that impetus, I think. Yeah. And I, I don't know how much of that derives from just being able to take <laughs> easy action. I can see Adil's eyes, and there are like some serious gears churning. <laughs> I know. I'm ready for I'm ready for what he had to say. That's why I paused for a second. But <laughs> uh, no, I was laughing at the Greg Abbott image, and I was thinking, I was like, I'm really excited for natalison.com forward slash Greg Abbott. You go buy some. <laughs> I briefly looked into it yesterday. That's why that was such a specific example. I figured. Yeah, to, I knew there was something real there. Yeah, it was it's hard to buy in bulk. It's hard to buy a ball. <laughs> uh, I the other contradiction here is the public. I I think there is a bit of I don't know what the right word for this is, but you go protest. You don't actually expect things to change. It's just like this release of anger. But we sort of have mm. lost faith in people listening and like actually modifying their behavior. People being the elites, the government, so on. It's like we'll go to this protest. It'll get covered, and then people won't show up the second or third day, most likely, or the crowds will dwindle, and then there won't be any legislative action. So there's that side of it where it's like this—I'll call it hopelessness—that might be too extreme. And the other side of it, though, is we still expect government to solve these problems, which is probably why people are not running and not actually doing that much more. And th there's a contradiction there, but they—I think—they happen separately in people's minds or in different people's minds, and it doesn't really get surfaced. Yeah. Because yeah, the, no, the same candidates and the same people, like talking heads, will simultaneously say things like, well, government can't do anything or they're not going to listen, while also being like voting for the guy who promised the most. And in the book, actually, 
Uh, He calls us out like democracies have led to this tendency for politicians to promise more than they know they can deliver because they need to to get elected. And the public will vote for the ones who promise the most, even though they have no faith in the fact that they can execute on any other promises. Yeah. It's just an escalating promise like Cold War or something. I can imagine, though. Like a very, I can imagine, a, I can imagine a very charismatic candidate, like, goes up, says, someone has to be moving in the positive direction. Here's all my flaw- flaws. And, like, we're just going to team up because we agree on, like, one very narrow thing that doesn't overreach the powers of government. Like, I would not be surprised to see that. There's a little bit of that happening on the right on issues yeah. I don't agree with, <laughs> uh, which is very <laughs> frustrating. And I think that's partially because the left appears to be in this odd, like, FDR, LBJ, like, obsession of, like, I want to get in and, like, pass big bills and do big projects as opposed to, like, narrowly scoped things. So maybe that will mean that in the short term, the right is more successful because they're like, yeah, we're basically, like, single issue on this particular thing, which is more I, realistic. I was going to say, I, I feel like the opportunity for a highly charismatic person from either party to step up just like increased dramatically because we've talked about this a few times but there there is this like growing dissatisfaction with the democratic party for like young liberals that have been i think trending a lot more towards like young republicans but the like roe v wade thing obviously changed that a lot right and so it like I, I, you know, basically up until Friday, I was pretty much like, okay, yeah, like I'm just going to vote like straight red this election. But now it's sort of like, okay, like that, that affects things, right? Like that really does. Yeah. But if you have a young Republican candidate who steps up in, in any area who says like, you know, we, it's like pro cutting down government spending and is also pro like reasonable abortion legislation, like they will probably win everything <laughs> i mean like the 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 power that that would have to like co- go across the aisle on that one issue is pretty ridiculous and so i i hope that there are a lot of young people in that party who are looking at that and thinking about it because it yeah. like that issue in particular feels so generational right like it's you i mean obviously there are like young people who are against it but most of them i think are older it's, it's like a much older belief but like this this could actually be the thing that causes like a serious rejiggering of like what it means to be in one party or the other i actually not had the opposite thought i think there the opportunity for a charismatic person on the left went up i think that too dramatically yeah, but I, I th- yeah 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 I, I especially think if they don't right, run like, biden in 2024 yeah for both yeah yeah so like a charismatic person on the left who is for reasonable energy policy, <laughs> you know, because I, I don't see an end to the gas price issue coming anytime soon, you know, is for you like... You mean shut down the rest of the nuclear power plants, right? Yeah, and exactly. Buy, yeah, that's the reasonable coal. energy. Yeah. Buy coal, exactly. Buy coal, yeah. <laughs> Just like what Germany Europe is, is doing right now. Exactly, yeah. yeah. They're true paragons of environmentalism. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like, I mean, I think if you had like a more, let's say, economically minded person on the left i actually could see them doing extremely well also more so because of this roe v wade issue that just happened right it's like before it when that was kind of a side you know not really a main issue you know because i i don't know if a republican can go against the mainstream like their mainstream not the country's mainstream but their mainstream view on the republican party on how that should go like i don't know if they'd get out of the primaries 
I'm like cautiously optimistic maybe. that a maybe. a charismatic yeah. centrist from either party could do incredibly well in the next few elections. Yeah, like I I I, and I it, do agree with that. Yeah, and this is my thing with Texas is like, and you know, I as I've been thinking about it, I think that they waited to overturn Roe until the primaries were locked in because. Mm-hmm. If they had done it before, then new people could run mm. for Senate and House and stuff. But like those are already those primaries are already done, right? Mm. And like I, I think we would have seen some pretty interesting people run if it had happened before. But now this happened after we're like stuck with fewer options, right? For two more years. So yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's like in Texas we have Abbott and Beto, and I don't really like either of them very much, right? But a if a like younger charismatic person who was more centrist had run like that that could have been really interesting right we have this new thing to react to and i know we've been talking about like being reactionary is bad but it does create this opportunity in this situation well we all do i think for somebody from yeah exactly (laughs) so it's also bad or good it's here to stay so it's like yeah what do you react to and how beto is a sad story because he was he could have potentially collapsed the pyramid he had that direction for a time and i think he decided he wanted to actually increase the distance and become an elite well, it's like what we've said about uh, Andrew Yang a couple of times is if you oh, listen yeah. to the way he talked on our podcast <laughs> interview, think. Yeah. exactly. And then the way he talked a few years later, like he clearly decided to move up the pyramid and like make himself sound more political, more presidential. Um, and I still really like him, but I liked yeah. him better when he had more of that like everyman vibe to him. He was so I wonder normal. if that was, yeah, I wonder if that yeah. was just pressures of like he ran as a Democrat went through the DNC structure rather than ran as like an independent. I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure the coaches yeah. all said like, you have yeah. to do this. And, yeah. um, and to be fair, th- that was a different time too. Like, yeah. I-, I think even the energy now versus the energy two years ago is different. So, yeah, so that's true too. I mean, two years is a long time. Yeah. COVID a changed a lot in that regard. I think COVID really accelerated a lot of this revolt of the public stuff. Yeah. Because it, I, I think that, it, it really changed our relationship with government authority for a lot of people who weren't previously in that camp, right? Where like distrust of government authority, especially around like medical stuff was like a very fringe idea four years ago. And now it's like way more mainstream, right? Yep. Uh, to various degrees. Yeah, even, but Even little things, even things which, like vaccine hesitancy, like you have to be like crazy, like crazy on the left or crazy on the right to have any vaccine hesitancy and now it's like yeah. very normal to question vaccines exactly now the question Whether is like it's well, a COVID vaccine, vaccine or all right yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's I like well, i don't believe this. in all vaccines but i believe in some maybe but like yeah. which ones are you talking about <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i think the the COVID accelerant like the specific reason at least in my memory when i think of like you know the 20 years that I was loosely online before COVID where I was like awake, right? Because before that I was like seven years old. I wouldn't understand anything. COVID was the first time I really experienced government's authority domestically. Mm. Before then it was always this distant thing. It was like, Oh, government's doing something in Iraq. Government's at a summit in Europe Mm. and so on. I never really thought about it. I think that's always been at war with Oceania. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Good reference. Uh, I guess you felt it Uh, directly. Yeah, and I think for most people that was their experience. Was this was the first time they really felt government in their lives for after probably a couple of decades? Yeah, except so for like going through like an airport yeah. or something. Like that's maybe one of the other places. 
and I, I don't know if that was universally a bad experience for people. I think that may have actually been like this, you know, security theater and it maybe. Oh, they might have felt good about it. They might have yeah. felt good about it. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm surely That's speculating true. on that point. We got a lot f- cynical about government COVID response faster than we did about government airport response. Or like it took yeah. quite a few years for us to be like, why are we still taking our shoes off? It took us <laughs> right. like. 12 it took us you know eight to 12 months to be like why are we still wearing masks outside this is stupid right Uh, (laughs) yeah exactly and maybe you could tie that to like the proliferation of more people talking to like social media stuff yeah yeah no what i was going to say is he has a section in the book about these mass protest movements in europe and the u.s so like the occupy movement after the financial crisis in 2008 and one point he brings up, which I think is still true today and is very interesting, and I don't know the reason why. He didn't know the reason why either. Um, he had some speculations. Was almost all the members of these protests are not actually like downtrodden people, not homeless people, not people who are actually, you know, the ones that are being protested on behalf of. It's usually people who are like generally middle class, upper middle class. They tend to be part of actually the the elite, you know, quote unquote elite group, like college educated. Um, and then they're the ones, you know, kind of like as part and globally, it seems to be the case, not just the US. I knew that was the case in the US because you see that a lot, especially, you know, with uh, especially on the left, I would say more so than the right. But yeah, I was I, I was very surprised to see that is also like a global thing. I, I was not aware of that. There's a quote that I loved, relished about this topic, which was, the Egyptian public had endured 30 years of Hosni Mubarak. The indignados at Puerto del Sol had suffered a loss of future prospects because of the severity of the economic crisis. In Israel, the public's, ex- the public's existential challenge to the established order came because Leif had found it unbearable to lengthen her commute. Such a brutal assessment. <laughs> like, the ultimate manifestation of elites protesting because they're like... the. I mean, the, they are the product. They are protesting the system that they are a product of. And yeah. that they've benefited from. I mean, for, yeah, like, that's where your prosperity has come from in a lot of, for, for those people in particular, they're not the ones who have been kind of, like, hurt by the system. I mean, they probably have, I like, the counterpoint to that is, like, you could say, like, the student loan issue is, like, part of that, right? It's like, sure, you went to college, but now you have 200K of debt that you can't, wipe out with a bankruptcy even like and you have a completely useless degree like there is like that is a legitimate gripe i think that you could say somebody in the elite group might have but it's not like i mean it's nothing compared to egypt (laughs) right like what what they had yeah and i don't think it's about legitimate or illegitimate gripes i think most of the gripes are actually very very legitimate Uh, i think it's more so than when you attack the system like of liberal democracy and says say the whole system doesn't work and you're nihilistic you want to tear the whole thing down but the channel through which you're able to express that is because you have freedom of speech and assembly through what's granted to you in a liberal democracy. Only at yeah, that extreme is it self-defeating. But all the gripes, I mean, liberal democracies are very far from perfect. Uh, so I don't think yeah. it's a question of that. Yeah. yeah, it's just interesting to me that this, like, that this group is the one that tends to lead and organize these protests and participate. I mean, you could say that somebody who's in a lower group maybe can't afford to do that either that's what i was thinking during the book because a lot of these examples are 2011 through 2013 which like it's easy to forget now but not everyone had a smartphone like i got my first smartphone in 2012 and like you know my family is doing significantly better than most of the folks described in the book so it's like if at that stage you had to be an elite to have a smartphone 
then you probably did rule out most folks who are not elite yeah. from these protests. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great point. It's harder for them to organize. So I, I, I would be curious, like, if there was a appendix added for like 2022, what the composition of these groups still looks like. Like, my hunch is that it's probably like more representative of the public now than it was before. I feel like the one thing we didn't quite get to was the nihilism piece of like why it was mm. like what why why why, oh, why did yeah. you write the book right? I can segue us into there. So the piece we've talked a lot about is the crisis of authority, uh, where authority gets fractured and everyone has less of it. There's less of a trust in institutions. But the impact of this, which we've alluded to, but I'll now make explicit, is as institutions leak credibility, leak legitimacy, then the blame shifts from individuals in the system, aka a bad politician or a bad leader, the blame shifts from them to the system. And that's where it gets very dangerous because he maintains throughout the book that liberal democracy continues to be the best system of governance for a multitude of reasons that I won't enumerate here, but in short, you know, freedom of assembly and expression and so on. And the resulting nihilism of a lack of trust in authority is just, I want to destroy everything because that's some progress. It's very like fight club-ish, you know, it's like just bringing down the system is good. V for Vendetta, again, it's like, oh, just people assembling in front of a building to blow it up is somehow like meaningful, which in retrospect is like, I mean, I've always just viewed V for Vendetta as entertainment and not as an instruction manual. But like, now that I've even heard this framing, I'm like, that's actually insane that the conclusion of the movie is they just blow up the building. And yeah, of course, everything will be fine. Someone will be in charge. Uh, it's actually a really weak ending. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well shot, though. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the last piece is you have this resulting nihilism, which might threaten democratic institutions like at their core. That feels like what he's getting at at the end with that quotation that you read, Adil. Uh, and actually, I mean, the the end of that quotation where he says, every structure of order is threatened. Yes, nihilism at the level of whole societies in the style of ISIS is a possible outcome, but no particular system is favored or disadvantaged and nothing is ordained. Is I, I think what he's saying is that there, nihilism is a natural reaction to this broad spanning failure of authority. But then we have to say what comes after that, because you do end up with two routes where you could have a highly destructive, you know, civil war-esque energy come out of it where, okay, we just have to like destroy everything because, you know, this is hopeless and fucked and it's not worth even trying to fix it. Or you can have a more optimistic, ambitious, like, you know, and good leaders come out of it too, who say, okay this stuff is bad, but we can fix it and we will fix it. And here's what we're doing. And that, that feels like what the energy needs to shift towards. And what we were saying about a highly charismatic, you know, politician or team of politicians running, I think that would really be what we would need to look for. Right. Or that's what I would be looking for is somebody who is very honest about everything that's wrong in the system right now and wants to fix it and is, uh, reasonable and uh, honest about like how they're going to do it and where the the challenges will be because that's just not something that we have right now. There's some real fourth turning vibes to the yeah, yeah exactly the nihilism part. Yeah, right? yeah, we still like, need the crisis. I was well, thinking yeah, while I mean, reading this is like, would I have enjoyed this as much if I had not read 
the fourth turning and seeing like a state in the immediate six weeks before it. Cause it brought together the best of those ideas and made them very yeah. tangible. Like this yeah. described to me the crisis. That's what, that's what my main takeaway. This was actually the ending of the fourth turning. Yeah. Yeah. That this crisis, it's a of, crisis of nihilism. Yeah. yeah. Crisis of yeah. authority. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the intense. nihilism part, the thing, the thing that's interesting for me, like personally about this is I recognized a lot of myself in like what he's talking about, the nihilism. Like there's totally. a lot of it made me like, feel really bad about yeah. myself. <laughs> yeah, like there's like, like yeah, part of the problem. Just, exactly. Like I think, and I think we all do this. I actually weirdly of the three of us, I think Adil does this the least. I think me and Nat do it a lot more. <laughs> Where it's like we enjoy. I think I like, do it the, quite a bit, you know, but I appreciate it. No, you do it too. No, yo, you do it too. You do it too. But I have like even in just one on one conversations with you, like you do have like a bit more. I don't want to say trust in the institutions, but like trust in the structure. <laughs> Right. That like it doesn't all have to come crashing down. <laughs> and like there are I have good days and bad days. There's bad days where I'm just like, yeah, this whole thing has to just fall apart and then we'll rebuild. But there's bad <laughs> day, there's good days where I'm like, no, you know what? Like, why am I like it doesn't necessarily have to go that way. Right. Like we actually can do something about it. And it's kind of a bit more of an optimistic message. And rather than kind of like cheering for the the whole thing falling down it's like how can we actually contribute to the solution kind of like nat's point about like people actually running and doing something so i made a list i was like okay if we take for granted some of the premises in the book which is government can't do much and when you're elected you have very limited time where you maybe control all three houses if at all so you have you have like one policy you have very little bit of time to pass it. What is the policy that's like going to be highest leverage? And this is very naive and dreamy and so on. So, but I'm going to pitch it anyway. If I had one policy at a federal level, it would be to subsidize exit costs from one state to another. So if somebody wanted to move out of a state, you would provide them like a moving service, a free broker, and like three months of housing in the other side. And that would actually be like a firm commitment to states as a laboratory of democracy. Then you wouldn't need to legislate everything at the federal level. The fragility of the federal system would be diminished because you now have like this anti-fragile system of the states where they disagree. But the problem with the state system is right now you get trapped somewhere, right? Like if you need an abortion and you can't leave Texas, like your life is severely altered. So if you get, let's say like twice in your life, a subsidized exit, then you actually commit to the idea of states as laboratories because then when they fuck something up, they actually can see movement out, out of the state. And not just and the state those would have a consequence. It. The state would yeah, have a consequence exactly. as well. Yeah. So it'd almost be more like companies like in the sense of like, well, if, you know, one of them, like if you're, you know, you, you're Coke and you change your recipe and people stop buying as much, like, okay, yeah, we screwed up. Right. You would see it in the numbers. Yep. That actually, I like that idea a lot. Introducing you- new Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess Adil, the other option is like, which is, this is not a good idea. This is certainly, I think Adil's idea is actually a rail recommendation. I think that could, I hope someday happen. It probably won't, but it would be awesome. Yeah, probably. The other <laughs> option that, people, that, well, the other thing though that has been done right in the past and is like people forming their own governments, right? It's like that's kind of what the U.S. was is like unhappy with the british system so we're gonna create our own country and like that that gets violent obviously it's not a recommendation it's not a good thing but that is another way that this system kind of self-regulates it's not as pretty and fun though i like Adil's idea a much lot to my regret because i mean <laughs> yours is significantly harder and violent and all the other things to do but strikes no, me terrible. as likelier. yeah it strikes me as likelier that that would happen than someone running for 
office the <laughs> federal level being like, yeah, we'll just pay for you to leave your state if you don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> Neil, what would your policy Which be? states would say no to that? Which states would be like, because what if they put it up to a vote for the states? Like, what, are there certain states who'd be like, hell yeah, we're like, we believe in ourselves. I feel like Florida would vote for this. Like, they feel really good about yeah. themselves right now. Yeah, yeah. Florida would Texas would probably vote for this, too, because Texas feels really good about itself. California, I feel like they'd be like, oh, shit. <laughs> i Bad think idea. actually it, i think after roe v wade california would be like you can come yeah i, I think that's, see yeah, that yeah. that might equalize things yeah, yeah exactly yeah. yep yeah so that's what i'm saying like which states say no like which ones are like oh no we would if pe- people could get paid to leave here like we'd be screwed we yeah. have nobody south dakota <laughs> 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 I mean, maybe this actually happens at a state by state. Yeah, like one state that just says we'll subsidize your moves here, like full stop. Like the way uh, Miami started doing that for, like, I mean, they didn't subsidize the moves, but the way they started aggressively trying to get businesses to move there. Yeah, because we already have some measures of this. Like you always see those charts of everyone who left SF and New York during COVID to go to like Austin and like kind of you know the long tail of other cities. We right, need but that, I think but that we need only it for people less- who are not techies. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I think right now that yeah. really only applies to people whose jobs are not like location dependent and yep. who have enough money to kind of like self fund that move. Yeah. But if you were say, Actually, subsidized, like I wonder would teachers move or something? You know, or, like, you know, it would be a yeah. more interesting way to do it is only do it for people who are on some sort of like government financial Ooh, assistance. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So that would be like, yeah, if your income is below probably like 30, 40 K or something if you want to move to another state, like as long as, you know, there, there'd have to be some contingency that goes with it. But I think you'd actually learn the most from that because like wealthy people don't need to be subsidized. They can do it anyway. They will do it. Right. But the the people who get trapped are really the people who are kind of like stuck in their job, uh, don't have the, the money to move. And so if you created a hyper mobile, lower income class to yep. like just relocate amongst the states, like, then things get really interesting really quickly, right? Because do they prefer the state with more business opportunities, financial opportunities for like that upward mobility? Do they prefer states with more like, you know, support Lower cost systems, of living. right? Lower, Lower cost of living, cost of how living much maybe. do the social issues matter, right? Like I, that, I would love to see that experiment run. I think that would be fascinating. And the... The way like the labor markets are distributed is lumpy. Like there are parts of the country that have virtually zero percent unemployment, but they just have trouble attracting uh, labor there because it's so expensive to move. So, right. well, I like you guys. I'm glad you guys like my. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, my, it's fun uh, to do a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so well, when all this stuff happens, we'll, uh, <laughs> yeah, Adil should run on Come this. On. Like, be the Andrew Yang, like, but for this issue. <laughs> You're like, no, we're not doing UBI, <laughs> but we will pay you to move to the state of your choice. <laughs> yeah, my, uh, anything else you every... trying to be at that past? Oh, yeah. Uh, Matt, what's uh, yours? Uh, oh, my, my, mine would be you tell every government agency they have to cut their budget by 90% for a year and then <laughs> see what breaks. Like, because I mean, it's, it's, I think it's an interesting experiment, right? Like, I think there would be a lot of them where you cut it by 90% and like, oh, it's actually totally fine, right? Uh, and then yeah. there'd be, you know, like, I, I think others would probably have a much harder time with it, but it, it would be, or, and, and you tell like government contractors too, right? Like, okay, now everybody's got to switch to the, the and real system, right? Like we're not doing any cost plus, like it's pure, uh, you know, we'll pay what you build or something, right? Like 
I, I would focus entirely on the budget because I feel like so many of our problems like end up stemming from just being like completely financially irresponsible. Yeah. Wow. Okay, I have one since we're all giving one. Mine is make Congress 10 times larger and make it a part-time <laughs> work from home job. Okay, you have to explain that. <laughs> yeah. So, so one thing, so one reason, so one reason is like, uh, and I forget which book we had done it in, but it was like the number of influential people, right, in Congress is just so small oh, that it's very easy to bribe them with their district, right? So you say like you're Lockheed Martin, you put like one office or one factory or something in yeah, their yeah. district and create a thousand jobs. And then anytime you want to threaten their reelection, you're like, well, if you don't vote this way, we're just going to move our factory to this other district. And now you are the reason we lost. It was dictator's handbook. Yep. Yeah. 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 So I think it is, it is surprising. Like the size of Congress is pretty small. If you think about it, like it's very easy to influence. And then the second thing is like, it doesn't need to be. So even originally, if you actually look at how Congress was initially set up, it was not a full-time job. It was like these people would come for the session. Then they were farmers or they were merchants or they were whatever else. And they had like other jobs, like they were regular people. They just happened to serve in Congress for a period of time. So like they were in touch with how people lived. <laughs> like they're just normal people. They and to your point that earlier yeah. in the episode, yeah, like AOC, like sure, she like I don't agree with a lot of things that she says, but at least she was like recently a normal person, like in in her own memory. I mean, when yeah. was the last time like Joe Biden was not in government or like you know, or like, I mean, you could name so many of these politicians who've been there for like half a century. And yeah. it's like, what you have no idea how a normal American lives because you haven't been a normal American for half a century. Like, how can you make a rule to, I mean, Trump was bragging when he was president about how he'd never used a computer. He's like, I've always, I use my phone, but he's like, I never owned a, a laptop or a desktop. It's like, okay, like, is that something to brag about? <laughs> like it's not something you're not in touch with how a normal person lives so going back to my proposal make it bigger and make it part-time and work from i mean work from home just makes it so much easier to be part-time anyway make it part-time so that all these people have to have regular jobs too i, I like actually i love this i like it so much <laughs> i started when you said it i was like this is so fucking stupid <laughs> and i <have> completely <laughs> swung over <laughs> Yeah, like I want I want someone in Congress who's actually a bartender. Like you can go to their bar and talk to them. I want somebody who's yeah. a teacher. I want somebody who's well, like a police officer. I want dude, someone I mean, who's a techie. The, like This was my yeah. problem was like cuz I started looking into like okay, you know, what what offices could you run for? And like it, it really is a full-time job. Like even yeah. even if you want to like I mean, like I, I think city council you could kind of do part time, but even that it's like these people are like full time focused on their political career. Like they might have other stuff that they do, but like it's really all consuming. And yeah, I mean that's yeah. not ideal because we don't really want career politicians running the country, right? Right, right. That's the that's kind of I think a big part of the issue is like these not just career politicians, but completely out of touch with how like Amer like what it, they don't even know what America is today because they just yeah. haven't lived yeah. there. Right, as like a non non elite for a long time. I'm gonna squeeze one more thing in. I know we're cool. very close to time, but I actually there's one more thing after was... that that Nat has to say that's quick. But yeah, <laughs> we have oh, to talk yeah. about your book notes. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll be very brief. Um, but one thing I appreciated that I had not thought of before because I've been so like just 
in it myself, like in the system, not viewing it from the outside, is the kind of the worship of effective authoritarianism is this like false narrative propagated by the elites of liberal democracies. And he had this really good analysis of like, actually, it's not really working as well as people would like it to believe. And it's actually this like self-inflicted wound. It's like a own goal, uh, leaking credibility from the system. I just love that he threw that in there because I hadn't. What was I an example know, of that? Uh, he gave the, G- like, the GE CEO giving the example of China, like saying like state run uh, communism, state run one party communism. It, this is a paraphrase, but saying it's, you know, he's like, it may not be your cup of tea, but it gets things done. Right. And like, it's that it, there was a section about that. Got it. I just appreciated that mention. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm not able to find it right now, but yeah. All right. Nat, hit us. Oh, oh yeah. Because we started, I started telling you guys this and then we figured we should capture this on the, the podcast. So I started doing this thing with reading physical books where, because I've always tried to keep a journal and I never do it. I just find it like very hard to maintain and keep up with. So whenever I start a new book, I write the date that I start reading it. And then I just write some notes about what's going on in my life at the time. And then that's in the front cover of the book. (laughs) And then when I finish it, I'll go back and I'll write when I finished it. And then I'll write what book I'm reading next or one of the other books I'm reading at the same time. And so over hopefully years and years, if I continue doing this, all of my books will be networked together throughout my life, but like in physical form. And I can like pick one up and remember what was going on in my life at the time that I read it. And it's way, I find it much easier to maintain than like a a separate journal. And I think it'll be fun for like my kids too, because then they can pull those books off the shelf at any time and be like, Oh wow, dad read this like 10 years ago. And you know, a deal wasn't a Senator yet. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) like, it's, it's fun and it's so much easier than trying to like think of shit to write down every day. It's okay. Like I picked up a new book, write some stuff in it and keep going so i definitely recommend it if you're somebody who that. collects physical books it's really fun i, I love, love this that. idea yeah yeah okay should we wrap up yeah i think it's time Th- yeah. this is the end of the crypto series crypto libertarian series this was, was fun. a good one to end on it, it yeah. actually it yeah. does tie it together in like a sort of optimistic future looking idea or again like you know two two roads diverge in a yellow wood or whatever right like I guess we should stop being nihilistic and whiny about everything and actually do something about it. Like read some classics. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, <laughs> yep. reclaim true liberal education. So next is the so Iliad. So the next book we're doing is the Iliad. Yep. Yep. Uh, probably the Iliad and then the Odyssey. Yeah. Uh, oh, so I need to share this with you guys. I, I took Tommy's list and I expanded it by pulling from a couple other sources. And... I, I reordered it a little bit, and I'm curious to get your guys' take on it. I, I ordered it by estimated publish date. So okay. my thinking was, you know, with, with Tommy's, it's like a little more thematic, and you like move forward through time, then you go back, and then you move forward, and then you go back. But I think there's also something fun with like just starting at the beginning of history and working your way forward, because then you you always know the references, right? You're, you, you, mm-hmm. You've read the Iliad, you've read the Odyssey, you've read all the like ancient Greek philosophy. So like the people who come later, you know what they are referencing. 
but you don't have as much of the like modern stuff like tainting your view of it. Uh, and then when you get to certain eras of thought, right, like the Renaissance or the late 17, early 1800s in political philosophy and like those different periods, you're reading all of them at the same time. So you see how they're like bouncing off each other, how they're influencing each other. I thought it might be a cool way to do it. It it expands the scope a little bit. Yeah. But I think it's pretty cool. So I... Uh, based off that what we would actually do is i think we go ahead and do the iliad because we've all already read it or started it but then we go back and read the epic of gilgamesh because that's basically the first one and then we do genesis and exodus mm. all right i love this idea man that's we're doing great. this i think it's yeah. a cool way to do it i i here's, really really here's like the other it. thing here's the other thing we should do we should Put this. I'm sure you wrote that down somewhere, Nat. We should put. I this, have a like, whole spreadsheet. I'll I'll, pub- okay. I'll make the spreadsheet public so people can use it. I was gonna say we should link to it from our site and basically make it like the made you think like great books curriculum or something. Like this is the order yeah. we're going in. And yeah, yeah, that, I love I'll, this. This is gonna be awesome. I have a couple of contributions. Also, if there's well, interest so in doing, oh, go ahead, and do. I was gonna say I have you're, a couple. Of oh, contributions you're saying like contributions well. of books. When we when we tweeted it out, uh, I got some feedback on the list, and I thought it was very apt. So um, specifically, Jose, if you're listening, hi, uh, had some really good suggestions. So uh, we can yeah, I mean, the, in there. and for anybody listening who has suggestions, the things that are definitely missing are like I, there's nothing from Africa, right? There's like some Middle Eastern stuff, and there's obviously like a couple Egyptian things we could put in there, but. I like. I just don't believe that there is nothing from Africa that we can include in this list, Fine, yeah. right? Like, I mean, it's definitely like Ivy League influenced, right? Like, only white people had good ideas, uh, so we have to like get away from that a little bit. There's some of the old, like Eastern stuff, right? Like, there's obviously like the the Rig Veda, the Bhagavad Gita. Like, there's all the Confucius stuff, Lao Tzu. Um, but I mean, there's really nothing from Africa and very little from South America. So the more we can pull in from those, I think the more it'll round out, and honestly, more Eastern stuff too, because there's like, yeah. there's there is a there is a like check the box amount of Eastern stuff, but not a yeah. like yeah. competitive amount. Yeah, so. I that was Native exactly American the stuff nature. Too, we could pull yeah. some Native American. Like I'm some, wondering, if, I don't know if it'd be written or more oh, like yeah. oral than that turned into written, but yeah, yeah. There's like recorded oral stories and stuff. I mean, I I know that like the like the paper-based written word was not as widespread in africa as it was in like the middle east and then obviously like europe and also asia so like it was more of an oral tradition i think so it's harder to have some of the same stories preserved but there have to be there has to be something that we can pull in there Um, i have i have this book on i just pulled off my bookshelf um, oh cool which is basically a collection of oral stories yeah sweet nice just basically a collection of oral stories I mean, they they were or like the author makes it clear these were like oral stories that he's collecting and writing down. Um, yeah, but there's some interesting so ones there. Was, I can flip through it, and if there's some that are like so is Iliad and Odyssey. You know, we can just do a selected. Yeah, that's true. And Genesis and, and Exodus. Uh, Genesis and Exodus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Bhagavad Gita as well. Same thing. Right. Yeah. It was oral, oral then story. written down. I mean, probably yeah. most of this really old stuff, right? Like, I guess it's really not. Yeah, we can get we can to... play with the list. We can play yeah, with the yeah. list. Yeah. And I think we can always go back to old stuff as we find it, right? Like mm-hmm. we default to starting at the end of history and working forward. And then as we find old things, we can always like circle back and then jump forward again. 
But I mean, as it stands, this list is like 250 books long. So we've, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we've got a project ahead of us. <laughs> oh, and also as an update, I have Telegram set up on my computer now. So yay! <laughs> <laughs> that is not going to make any sense to anyone listening to the episode. But the joke was before we started recording. I always send the recording link on iMessage and they're always like, why? And we always talk on Telegram otherwise. <laughs> and they're like, why does Neil not send this link on Telegram? Because I don't have it on my computer, but now I do. <laughs> so shut up, Matt. <laughs> In your face. <laughs> oh, uh, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll make a copy of, I'll make a copy of my spreadsheet because I'm, I'm recording my like reviews and my dates in it as well, but I'll make a copy and share it with you guys. We can add other stuff to it. And then uh, we can also make it public for anybody who wants to join in. Sweet. Hell yeah. All right. Cool. Good time. Should we wrap up? Yeah, yeah. So yep. leave us a nice review. Spotify, I guess, sort of like the main place now. I guess iTunes too, but it seems like it's mostly Spotify now. It's like the spot. Um, for reviews? For reviews, right? I haven't been in Libsyn in a yeah. little bit. Weirdly, our listens, I mean, we do get a good number of listens in Spotify for sure, but we do get more listens on iTunes or on like Apple Podcasts. So, so interesting. Surprisingly. I, I would love to know who you people are. Why are you using Apple Podcasts? I feel like it's just the worst podcasting app. I know. <laughs> well, there's some people who I, I've talked to who really hate how Spotify does podcasts. They actually say, I, I don't like, like podcasts either. I think it's yeah. terrible, but. Yeah, what do you and guys then, I mean, there's so many others. There's so many others. Yeah. Like, you don't have to use, use like, Stitcher, or you can, I mean, there's, just, like, there's so many you can use. I mean, yeah, I'm kind of surprised about the Apple thing, too, though, because it's yeah. really crappy. <laughs> Defaults, man. Defaults. Default, what do you guys yeah. use? I use Pocket Cast. Uh, I use Stitcher a lot. Stitcher and Pocket Cast. Yeah. I really like Pocket Cast. Yeah, I, I mean, I've used Spotify here and there, but not just because things get, like, forced into the home screen. <laughs> Because also, I, listen, I mean, Rogan is on there, right? So it's like you start listening to that, and then they are—they always do try to push other stuff on the home screen. They're like, oh, you listen to Rogan. You'll like this. <laughs> it's funny. I haven't listened to Rogan in forever because he's on Spotify. I know. Exactly I, I bet way. that's happened for a lot, a lot of people. I'm sure yeah. I'm not the only one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's literally he switched, and I basically just stopped listening to him. So yeah. I can't be the only one. Same thing for me. Yep. Uh, the I only time I will is if again. somebody else is like, if somebody's like, oh, he did, there's like this really great interview you should go listen to, right? Like then I'll go. Like his, his uh, Antonio Garcia Martinez interview was really good. I really enjoyed that one. I have not listened it's to that, mostly, but now I will. That, I do the same thing. I listen when people are yeah. recommending one and I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll listen to that it's one. It's mostly about Antonio like going to the front lines in Ukraine and like his experience there and uh, oh, wow. what was actually going on. It's pretty cool. Dude's kind of a badass. I didn't even like, know, it was interesting I didn't even know he did yeah. that. I didn't even no, know he I, did that. Oh, I don't follow him on Twitter, actually. That's probably why. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't yeah, know I read his book, either. though. Chaos, Chaos Monkeys, right? Chaos Monkeys, same guy. yeah. So yeah. good. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's a good book. Actually, Adil, you're the one who recommended that to me way back. It's a great book. Yeah, it's a, it's a really fun read. Yeah. <laughs> really fun. Okay. Cool. Yeah, All leave right. us a review. Hit us up on Twitter. And I actually think you should read this book too, Revolt to the Public. I, I think yeah. it was actually worth reading. I would it. Like, yeah, entertaining too. And sure. it's just a beautiful print too. I love holding the book. It really is. It's gorgeously done. Stripe Press, right? Good job, Stripe. Yep. yep. Oh, that was Stripe Press. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 All righty. Cool. All right, we'll guys. See you all next time. See you next time.
See you next time.